0: you know, material choices being what they are, like the the general kind of um, things being relatively open plan, the layout of appliances, the amount of storage that you think you're going to need, um, how it's configured is remarkably consistent given how much the world has changed. I mean, it's, it's strange, really. Hey there. Welcome back to
1: Mid Modern Model. This is the show about updating MCM homes, helping you match a mid century home to your modern life. I'm your host, Della Hansman, architect and mid century ranch enthusiast. You're listening to season five, episode two. Today's episode is a recent interview with Sarah Archer author of The Mid-Century Kitchen. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. Sarah's book, subtitled America's Favorite Room, From Workspace to Dreamscape, 1940s to 1970s, is just absolutely fabulous. I bought it immediately when I happened past it on a bookstore shelf a few years ago. Oh man, remember being in bookstores? And I've both skimmed through it pleasantly and pored over it in fascination many times since. We are going to talk about how the mid-century kitchen came to be. The influence of advertising, wartime deprivations and the Great Depression, freezer goods, keeping up with the Joneses, and our Cold War race to make the Russians jealous of capitalism all contributed to the kitchens that we pretty much all live in today. I'm really tickled that she agreed to come chat with me for mid-mod Remodel.
0: Without further ado, Sarah Archer. The mid-century kitchen represented a kind of... Um peak of offerings for Americans. Like if you think about all the things that you really want in a kitchen today, um, the appliances, the services, the sort of access to hot water, you know, stuff we think of as being pretty basic. Um, It wasn't basic for a long time, but the point at which it became normal to have all those things was the 1950s. And so essentially if you take away the microwave and take away Certain more recent gadgets, like air fryers or you know machines that make seltzer and stuff like that, um, the sort of perfect ten of an American kitchen essentially is that 1950s like dream kitchen. You've got your dishwasher, your you know, which not everybody had. You know, plenty of people kind of renovated their kitchens over time, but it it offered everything that we think of as normal today. So, right. in other words, if you were teleported back to 1962. You'd probably be able to figure out how to use the appliances. You'd know what to do. You could probably, if you had ingredients, you could sort of cook a meal if for your Jetsons family if you were, you know, thrown into that <laughs> thought experiment. But if the same experiment tossed you back fifty years earlier than that, most of us would be pretty lost. You know, cast iron coal stove. You know, uh, not necessarily probably not a refrigerator. You know, it, we would be pretty much at sea. Um, in, you know, right. an period.
1: it is interesting. Well, in the, I don't know when to put you on the spot, but in the book, you kind of walk through some of the eras starting, I think in the twenties of how mm-hmm. the kitchen started to shift. Yeah. Could you give us a thumbnail sketch overview of that? Definitely.
0: It's, I mean, and it's so interesting that it was this kind of gradual process because that's partly due to the world wars. Mm-hmm. It, the, I mean, part of it was the advent of municipal services, like Indoor plumbing, um, gas lines, and electricity made all of it possible. None of it was possible without those things. Right. Um, and that started to happen in cities, um, you know, as early as the 1890s in some places. And that kind of happened um, as late as the 1930s in more rural places as part of the sort of Great Depression, you know, uh, WPA. And that really sort of told manufacturers, okay, now is the time that people, ordinary people are going to start buying appliances to make their lives easier. And this fits into kind of a larger pattern of um, manufacturers and designers kind of coming up with cool ways to get people to buy stuff that they don't really need. Um, it would be, I would argue that I need a dishwasher. I, it is hard for me to live without one <laughs> today. But truth be told, I mean, I'd, I'd live, right, if it, if it went away. But um, the idea of kind of upselling people on appliances, creating the need then to buy soap or to buy you know kind of widgets for things that need to be replaced, mm-hmm. um, creates all sorts of new kind of kind of consumer streams. And there was a lot of consciousness about that. The idea of kind of needing to treat durable goods like throwaway goods in a way, um, so they had to be stylish. And in the twenties, this was a tiny market. It was you know very very few people are buying refrigerators and they were very rudimentary. It was, you know, kind of the era of the icebox. But as streamlining started to shape um, industrial design for things like cars and trains, um, the look and feel of progress that was really dazzling people that you'd see at, you know, World's Fairs and kind of different big events started to get applied to um, household goods and designers like um, Henry Dreyfuss, Raymond Lowy, Uh, Norman Belgetti started kind of streamlining things like stoves and refrigerators, which as you know, we don't need to go fast through the air, but really cool when they have, you know, speed whiskers and rounded edges and have all their kind of um, mechanical guts disguised by a nice sort of hood. Um, if If you Google monitor top refrigerator, that will bring up images of this kind of hulking device that was very modern at the time and considered like the latest thing. But and has, there are pictures in the book too. Yes, there's a picture yeah. in the book as well. And of a kind of a mod, like a 1920s model kind of showing mm-hmm. it. And this gigantic condenser. And it's actually just to kind of put in perspective how long ago this is. The nickname comes from the, it's the the USS Monitor, like a Civil War ironclad. And so people in the 1920s who still had living memory of that, see like the silhouette of it, it had this kind of hockey puck shaped, turret like on top, and so yeah. This so it's such a reminder. Oh, that's like hopscaching really, back through time. Totally, like that's a really long time ago, and it was like you know I'll, the the early ads for these things are like, you know, you can go away for the weekend, it doesn't require oiling, like all these things <laughs> that are like, oh, great. I so I it's like a, a pet, order. basically. Exactly, it's like having a dog, like it's like, <laughs> you know, having a fridge. But I mean, imagine the alternative, not having a fridge. I right. mean, it's made, right? So even if you have to oil it, whatever, I mean, that's, it sounds crazy, but so then everything essentially grinds to a halt during World War II. And many of the companies that, because we didn't sort of have the same permanent industrial complex, kind of military industrial complex that we do now, that had to be sort of scaled up overnight in 1941. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies um, stopped making vacuum cleaners and uh, stoves and and so on, and started making um, supplies for for war. And you could sort of buy war bonds through you know Hoover or something, and say like you know at the end of the war you can sort of you know. Buy yourself a new vacuum cleaner, or there's a wonderful kind of um, blueprint ad from Hotpoint that shows your kind of after the the war ends dream kitchen. This idea that you know there's all these there's going to be all this new housing built and you can access it and it's going to be fabulous and you'll have you know hot and cold running services and it's great. So. That was kind of the very, very beginning of the kind of post-war dream kitchen. And they were just teasing it, just
1: sort of like they had the
0: idea ready. It's fascinating because I think of this as sort
1: of like um, the market meeting demand, but the way Mm -hmm. you're describing it, it's a lot more like they
0: were just waiting for the moment when they could hook people on this. Right. Well, I think it was both. I mean, I think honestly, it was really going back to like the 19 sort of teens and 20s, there were... Um, you know, lots of home economists, people like Christine Frederick, who were kind of studying the science of sort of operational efficiency in factories and saying like, how can we apply this to the kitchen to reduce steps? And, you know, so a, a lot of the marketing things for, um, the very early stages of this in the, in the 1920s and 30s talked about step saving and how it would save your beauty as a woman. Like it would sort of prevent <laughs> you from becoming like prematurely aged and haggard to like not have to walk back and forth between, you know, it is, they're, they're pretty, now uh, a lot we're of all the,
1: wearing Fitbits. Um, exactly. Cause we're, exactly. So it's like,
0: that's, you know, we're, we're, we're figuring out in other ways, but especially at the end of, um, World War II. Okay, we're all scaled up. Now, what do we do? Like we, right. we have this ability to like mass produce aluminum like crazy. Now, what do we do? There's and, so many aspects of that in the mid-century house: carpets made I mean, out of nylon, oh parachutes, yeah, it's all the like everything in the kitchen. It's t- you know, for mica, like all of this stuff, Tupperware. But it was also, I think, absolutely market demand because imagine that you're in that generation that goes from, you know, remembering or living with no indoor plumbing and you know, having a, a coal stove to suddenly like you have a dishwasher like that's pretty life changing. And I think, you know, for people who um, it it sort of evolved in tandem with women working, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of leaving the farm, moving to cities, working in professions. Um, in smaller numbers pursuing higher education but even in kind of greater numbers just working outside the home generally right um and the idea of kind of you know needing and wanting those conveniences which we, we now take for granted
1: yeah and it's interesting too because it feels like a lot of it well it was interesting the marketing is all how to make it more convenient and yet the women who are shown in these kitchens are always they're not dressed to go out the door working. They're dressed like they're going to be in the house all day, but throwing a party. But like Um, really fancy. Exactly. Right. Um, so it's interesting because at one point in the book, you call out that, um, the message is so much about labor saving, but it almost starts to turn into a message of the woman herself is a glorified kitchen gadget.
0: Right. So there's this, it's this interesting paradox and this almost sort of, um, Dilemma that advertisers and manufacturers sort of gave themselves. Like assign, they sort of assigned themselves this problem of. So one thing that that is happening is changes in social class, and that there's this. I essentially um, this expression that you you know before World War I, you either were help or you had help, which is obviously a huge exaggeration. But to the extent that there was not a gigantic middle class kind of consumer class that's, it's more or less true. I mean, there were right. not, there were a small handful of very wealthy people who had staff and massive kitchens that were basically like workspaces in the house. And if you troll online real estate listings, like even though I already own a house and need another house, like home um, looking at like gigantic kitchens and really old houses, they sort of look like workspaces, right? Like they right. don't look, they might be really huge and well-lit and beautiful, and beautiful, and like the way that we think of things as being sort of you know vintage and and beautiful, but not an eat-in kitchen for a family, right? Right. No one would hang out in there. It's a you're, you're not maxing and relaxing in there. Separate from the house completely. Yeah. And so what starts to happen after World War II, and there are kind of seeds of this planted in the twenties and thirties, like those ads for Westinghouse that talk about um, an invisible servant. Like, oh, I have this new this this new stove that's automatic, and it's like having an invisible servant. Is that it allowed? people who had never had help, who had never been sort of genteel in in air quotes, to change their lifestyle in a way that became that kind of um, made it possible for them to entertain, you know, instead of sort of the idea of living in a handful of rooms with a stove that smells and, Mm -hmm. you know, spending all your time, you know, doing this labor, the idea that you could almost kind of like sort of kick up your social class a couple notches with these appliances that it sort of turns you into a new kind of person. And then world war II, essentially, or more specifically the federal aid that happened after that, which is always important to, to point out was very um, almost exclusively white yeah, um, is a key to mention this. This was not a universal uh, GI experience, um, but essentially there was a gigantic new middle class. And so then you have women sort of coming back home after the war, having worked, you want to make their lives easier. But not so easy that they give up on housework altogether. A lot of the industrial films, which are hysterical, I, I I highly I always recommend that people watch these on YouTube. There's one called Design for Dreaming from General Motors that's a masterpiece. And it's oh, someone who that. has this like musical theater fantasia where she's like swept away by this masked man to like visit like this appliance wonderland. And it was shown at Motorama, because at this time uh Frigidera is owned by General Motors. So A lot of the marketing to middle class women is about leisure. Mm -hmm. Like we have your dishes and casserole covered. So you can play tennis and you know sunbathe and start a book club and like do all these kind of cool, genteel, you know, sort of housewifey cultured things never mentions like you can become, you can be on the Supreme court or like you right. can do you know, like all this other stuff. Like that's not part of it. You can go
1: be a CEO or even a exactly. secretary, just like, you know, it's like in your you house, you can be great
0: at home, buying stuff all the time, you know, buying the right kind of dish soap that we want you to and buying the right kind of deterrent, you know, all this stuff. But we're also kind of making it a pleasure to be at home, right? Like we're, and we're, you know, making, these appliances make it so that your kitchen is sort of an, a cool entertaining space. You can kind of have people over. And so it's really about, um, it's a shifting gender role, but not in a way that would seem like a big change from our point of view, if that makes yeah. sense. Like it's, you, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's, it's evolving social class and kind of evolving aesthetics, but kind of still essentially locked out of higher education in most ways and locked out of, you know professions.
1: It's you see that in the space because in the ads, you see the kitchen appliances often shown in a more open plan layout because it's an easy way to photograph or draw the exactly. space. And also, you can show, like, oh, look, and her laundry is right here in the kitchen so that we can show that the laundry matches the <laughs> stove. But that's not what you experience. Well, I can only speak to the Midwest, but that's not what you experience in a builder grade house. You see exactly. this very classic layout of either a U or an L shape of all the cabinets are wall engaged. So yep. one person cooks and they prep facing a counter mm-hmm. uh, wall cabinet or maybe a window at the kitchen sink. Right. And then if somebody comes in the room to talk to them, they have to turn around.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's not an era out. of
1: islands. Although
0: you mentioned a couple of islands in the book. Um, I don't know how much few, you got into that. But the the U-shape thing is, there's a, a couple of sources for that. There's definitely like the Cornell experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Cornell Agriculture School did all these sort of er- er- ergon- ergonometric experiments with, you know, counter height, making sure that things were the right height for the typical woman, which I think was five foot six or five foot four. And- um all were, too short for me. <laughs> if, if, right, exactly. I always had that experience too. Um, Lillian Gilbreth's work triangle, which was kind of her- um, uh, theory of kind of kitchen efficiency that you could just sort of pivot. And so that's in large part where the you comes from, like that kind of um being sort of surrounded on three sides, almost like you're on TV. Right. Um it right. It's like kind of this the slice that you see in the commercials or in the TV shows that um is focused entirely on the kitchen as a space for efficient work rather than as a social space. Which right. Is really it's cool. all for prep or right. all for prep like, or whatever. Like the nice it's the labor back. of cooking.
1: Yeah. And then you actually mentioned as as you go through the mid-century era, getting into the 60s and 70s, there's more of a move towards this idea of the kitchen as a social space. Yep. There, I mean, there was always a chance, like in the kitchen, just like mine. I have a 1952 house. I haven't I haven't remodeled the kitchen yet. I have oh. plans to work oh with the existing layout. <clears throat> it's a time capsule. Um oh my God. until very recently, by which I mean like earlier this month, it was still painted uh, mint green, like oh, most of the house was when I moved in
0: a masterpiece. Right.
1: <laughs> a lot. Um, it's white now and I, I love the woodwork so much better, but, um, mm-hmm. it, ha- I have an L shaped kitchen. Um, and then there's space. There's just kind of a lot of open space. I've put a butcher block into it, but I think what was originally there was a kitchen table. And that's kind of the idea that like yeah. mom cooks at the counter and then turns yep. around and everyone hangs out, and looks at each other at the table. Right. The and economy of wood-
0: and- yeah, exactly.
1: Woman workspace, family sit space. Yeah. It's so interesting, but in the seventies, I think the kitchen started to open up more.
0: It did. There absolutely was um, more of a sense in newer builds that the kitchen was a place to entertain. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you could almost kind of, you know, give a party there, it was kind of spread out. And there was also, um, it was the height of the counterculture. So there's this idea that that's the moment when you start to actually see men in appliance ads, which is really, because it almost happens like clockwork. It's like, they're totally missing with the exception of the odd, like, guy in a suit in the corner. Right. Mm -hmm. Like either Santa Claus or like a guy in like a, you know, fedora, like opening the, the door. But in this, in the early seventies, like you start to see husbands like helping with stuff, which is so funny. It's like that it just starts right in like 1972. And this idea that, you know, we're moving into an era when um, we're thinking about where our food is coming from, uh, you know, whole earth catalog, we're looking mm-hmm. at uh, dyes and chemicals. We're reading silent spring and concerned about that. Um, ERA is in the mix We're you know, thinking about like, who does the housework. And so I, there is a, a weird way in which, in a few cases explicitly, like, there's this one amazing um, Roper print ad for Stoves that has women holding signs that say, like, you know, no more drudgery. Like, they're at an ERA rally. Like, they're kind of, like, protesting. I'm making notes. <laughs> how it's, work. it's Yeah, it's amazing. But there's not a ton of that. Like, it's, it's, for the most part, it's kind of weaving this subtle counterculture narrative into the traditional formula of, like, You know, it's like your, your, your wife will think that you're groovy if you buy her (laughs) this washer dryer and like, you know, ochre or harvest or whatever, you know, it's just kind of, it's like, so, but there definitely is a move, especially in shelter magazines too, on the editorial side toward this idea of like the kitchen as an entertaining kind of hangout space. Mm -hmm. Because it's also kind of the birth of the, the gourmet, you know, as people are watching um, Julie Child and, you know, kind of delving into new ingredients and really kind of starting to enjoy that.
1: Right. And that, that sense it's funny because we came from a place where in the pre-World War II era, everything was made from ingredients and everything Mm -hmm. was preserved by hand. And then we get into shelf-stable food and refrigeration. Mm -hmm. And now to cook from scratch is this act of choice, of will, of recreation. It's aspirational. Um, It's a should- rather right.
0: than I have to. Right, because um, our concerns are totally different. And I think that there's this whole thing about pre- preserved food is totally fascinating, um, that it was such a time saver, because if you think back to the era, what, you know, just sort of around the time that you're worried about like oiling your refrigerator and leaving for the weekend, women, I mean, people generally, but women in particular are terrified of food spoilage. And throughout all of the depression, you know, when like nobody has money, you you buy groceries and like god forbid you screw it up and if you waste it? it it's so expensive and so much has been wasted so for that generation then shelf-stable food is like a miracle right because mm-hmm. it's like oh i can do my shopping i don't have to worry i can let you know at least i have this whole kind of stockpile i you know i won't nothing will be wasted because i think it we are sort of because we've been through so much financial shenanigans in our our lifetime it i think the the shock of the depression it, because of its severity and just the, the 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 lack of safety nets that existed when it occurred are it, the kind of trauma of that and the the way in which it marked people who lived through it is a little hard to relate to for people now just because there are kind of different you know there are ways to access and it lingered i mean that it's i have a, one of those like jump
1: back connections my great-grandmother for whom I'm named, who I only vaguely remember, but there are so many stories about her in the family, was famously obsessed with having freezing technology. And she would put together a big spread. When the family would come to visit, she would like fill the table with food. And then as you were in the middle of eating it, she would say, do you like those beans? Put those up in 62. Um, it would be like several years previously, <laughs> and
0: they've been frozen in time ever since. That's and incredible. my parents That's would be fantastic. like, "Oh yeah,
1: they're great, Grandma." Um, right, right. But yeah, she exactly.
0: was so wowed by that. Like oh, the longer right? she could of keep course. them, the cooler it was. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's sort of you know, it's it's canning and preserving is a life skill. Um, and, You know, <laughs> and people are. It. I remember when I when I was teaching history of modern design um, a few years ago to. The students then, I guess, would have been born in like the mid to late nineties or something like that. They were nice young people, Um, and I was kind of trying to get across to them to the extent that I can. um, You know, there are no credit cards in nineteen twenty nine. You know, you can't. the, The ways in which you know, there there are no social programs. There's no social security. There's no WIC. There's no nothing. So when this happened if you didn't have money and like most people don't, you were really, really screwed. And so to try to convey and kind of explain why the sort of housewife vacuuming with pearls, like she's in heaven, kind of weirdly makes sense if you've lived through that. Like if, if you experienced that deprivation, right, kind of came out the other side, then you're like, Oh, it's a miracle. You know, it's like, this is the greatest thing ever. And we look at it and we're kind of like, go to grad school, like, right. do, you know, <laughs> um, what pills are you on? Maybe it's, literally, you know, um, and which I, I say that not in any way to at all minimize the struggle that people are going through in this pandemic, economically, financially, a lot of things are extraordinarily screwed up in the United States, you know, mm-hmm. so not, sort of not say that that's not the case, but I think um, it's important to kind of remember, the, the, we don't have enough guardrails now but there were like no guardrails right then. so that
1: what it meant to get into a house and have a mid-century kitchen was
0: a nightmare like oh oh my god it was, right it was it was rare um and it is becoming increasingly rare i think thing that um, millennials don't love now and i'm sure that
1: um chenzi is gonna have even more fun trying to get houses, but uh, yeah, it's yeah. a whole we need, thing. We
0: need like a, a series of mini revolutions in this country and real, real estate revolutions.
1: Well, it is interesting though, because we're still living in the housing stock that was built yeah. then. Um And if we aren't, I mean, it's interesting too, because the mid-century kitchen, if a house was built before that, even, I mean, houses aren't that old in America, but even a hundred years <laughs> before that, it certainly has been updated. No Uh, what is it no more no earlier than the Mm mid-century and probably since then and if we live in a house that was built in the 90s a builder basic kitchen is still pretty informed by the unit module of
0: a mid-century kitchen
1: even though our our lives have changed a lot
0: since then and we aren't impressed by some of the same right (laughs) we're not sort (laughs) of (laughs) (laughs) dazzled by the same thing right but but it's in a way it's like that makes it all the weirder that it hasn't changed that much like certain Mm. things like um, the preference for wooden cabinets is something that you don't see really in mid-century or, or it's sort of a certain kind of like, um, you know, kind of carved wooden cabinets. Like that was kind of a real 70s, 80s thing. Right. Experience. But, you know, material choices being what they are, like the, the general kind of um, things being relatively open plan, the layout of appliances, the amount of storage that you think you're going to need. Um, how it's configured is remarkably consistent, given how much the world has changed. I mean, it's, it's strange, really. Right. And I think the the thing I run
1: into the most when I'm helping people who have a house like this and they want to remodel it is that it's not that, well, people, everyone feels like they need more space. Mm-hmm. That's fair, although it's debatable in terms of efficiency and how it's being used and whatnot. But the thing that people really run into is that it's really hard for multiple people to a hang out in a kitchen, but B cook in a kitchen together. If it was designed in the mid-century, you're going to be bumping hips and reaching for the wrong drawers and cross-opening the stove and the dishwasher. You know, if you're going to try to have a whole family cook at once, mm-hmm. people are going to bump hips. But I think this the the trick really to be able to get people to cook to to cook at the same time, or even to get people to cook and hang out, is to have any kind of space where you can look directly across at someone via the peninsula which is more common in these small tight kitchen remodels or an island the dream let's see I wanted to just sort of ask what was your what was what's your thought on how we live today in a mid-century kitchen or maybe they need to change or maybe they don't maybe we just need to adapt
0: ourselves looking back at the history it's such a it's such an interesting question, and it's so and people. It's funny people often assume that I have like a time capsule kitchen, and I totally don't. Like it's mostly IKEA, like, <laughs> but and that's just because of the the quirks of of where we live. But I think, you know, in terms of, I think there's a lot of value in preserving some of those design traditions by kind of seeking out those materials. Like if you can find some really cool formica, that's like a little bit 1954, like, and you, and it works. Like, I think that's great. I think I love the idea of kind of um, there being a tradition in the same way that people will, will seek out, um, you know, a 19th century fabric or put, you know, 18th century farmhouse furniture in their home. Cause they're trying to sort of keep a design aesthetic alive. Yeah, Why not do that? With, you know, if you can find um, a Frigidaire Flare stove that works. Which, if you can find one, it probably does work. Yeah, they're great. Like, that's awesome. I I think that's totally cool. Yeah.
1: And a lot of times I think the solution is not build new, build bigger, build better. It's fit into the space you have. Reconfigure things. Preserve what you can. Yeah. Take lessons from what worked in the past. And then also be aware. I think the benefit of a book like yours is both inspirational to just flip through and say, oh my God, this is the paint color for my kitchen. But also to say, this is the social movement that caused this to happen. There's the economic forces that created this. How do I push back against that? How do I refer to it even? And you you
0: don't have to adhere to it.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and I I mean, there's so much, oh, there's so much trophy kitchening today with the like Wolf refrigerator and the- La Cornu stove. Everything that's sort of- dream ish. But I mean, I don't know, from my point of view as a designer, I hate to see too much money go into appliances because that limits all of your other choices in terms of everything else. And it's, it does, I don't know how much it wins you. If you're a gourmet, sure. Maybe you need that. But a lot of people, I mean, the question that I ask my clients is, you know, like, are you cooks? Do you cook at all? Yeah. Do you cook a lot? Does the whole family cook? Does one person cook? You know, it matters. I think kitchens right. also got into the habit of being very one size fits all. Right. And and as, the, as much the, as they were customizable in terms of like, oh, mine's blue and mine's pink, they were the same
0: same basic setup, like same yeah. basic menu of like here are the things. And I think there are a lot of like funny configurations that probably depending on the person would be totally fine. This has been such a pleasure. I could keep you on the phone
1: forever. <laughs> I have to cut this off, but I have to thank you so much. I don't know what your next project is, but if it's in any way related to mid-century, I'd love to point my it listeners may at be. it. I am
0: actually working on a new proposal um, that is design related, but it may be sort of like mid-century as a jumping off point. So I, I will watch this space as they say. Oh, absolutely. Um, everybody posted on that. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.
1: What a delight. I've learned a few things I didn't know even from reading the book, which I recommend you all rush out and get. I'll link to the info in the show notes so you can make the Mid-Century Kitchen your own with just a few clicks or easily source it from your local bookstore. Find that link in the show notes at midmod midwestcom slash 502. You can help new listeners find the show by adding a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And speaking of conversations about mid-century kitchens, let's continue this one on Clubhouse. If you haven't heard of it yet, Clubhouse is a new social media platform that is voice only. It's kind of like a live podcast where you get to talk back to the host. That's me. I'd love to talk to you there. And I'm hosting a regular Wednesday evening room at 6 p.m. Central. It's called, surprise, surprise, Mid-Mod Remodel, and you can find it in the House and Renovation Club. Clubhouse is invite-only at the moment, but I have invites to spare, so drop me a DM on Instagram and I'll hook you up. Next week, I'll be sharing some of my own thoughts and experiences with mid-century kitchen layout challenges. See you then.